Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Ross, vestibular physical therapist and neuroclinical specialist, joined by Dr. Danny Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. Today we have a guest that's very near and dear to my heart as she is and was my mentor at NYU. We have Tara Denham on the show to talk to us about all things vestibular rehab, which is of course what Danny and I do on an everyday basis. So welcome Tara. Thank you for having me, Abby and Danny. We're so excited to have you here. Yeah. I have to say at CSM back in 2019, the year I met Abby, your talk, uh, especially with the family feud style approach to the end of your talk, was probably my favorite of the entire CSM weekend or week. So Thanks. I had to say I'm very excited to have you here. <laughs> and funniest. <laughs> it was fun. But, uh, you know, I don't mean to age you, Tara, but you've been in the vestibular rehab world a while. And one of the main questions that I want to dive into is what changes or evolutions have you seen happen in terms of physical therapy approach to vestibular dysfunction? Well, I started the clinic in 1990. So we're talking over 32 years, I guess. And um, so a lot of things have changed since then. I really um, was one of the few vestibular clinics in the country, maybe 10 or so. So we really didn't have a lot of um, people treating this population. So it was a lot of learning in the beginning and, you know, trying to figure it out. Um, and as we, as we grew and more people became vestibular therapists, we had more courses and start, and we started to learn that way. A lot of it was trial by error in the beginning because nobody had um, really any evidence-based information. So now um, there's been a lot of evidence-based knowledge that's come out. We have um, CPGs, they're called um, clinical practice guidelines for treating hypofunction, treating concussion, treating BPVV. So a lot has really come um, we've come a really long way in, in making sure that what we're doing is evidence-based and that it's, you know, then that so we're successful. So it's really kind of come full circle from not knowing anything, you know, and trying just to figure it out as we went along to really having some solid uh, research behind what we do and, and why it's successful and how to be successful. Did you have any pushback from doctors initially about vestibular therapy? And did you find it difficult to get people to refer patients to vestibular therapy in the beginning? In the beginning, there were certainly a handful of people that didn't think that this was, it was, it was a lot of hullabaloo, you know, you, I don't know what you're doing, but, you know, um, so it, I did, I had actually the head of the department when um, the chairman say to me, Tara, you know, like these people are all going to get better. Why are you making them dizzy just to make they're going to get better anyway? So it was a lot of um, education. It was a lot of, you know, they would what would what happened was, was interestingly, they would send me these tough people like that. They didn't couldn't have anything, you know, couldn't figure out anything to do with them. And so they said, oh, let's send them to Tara. And then as they started to get a little better, they were like, oh, maybe this stuff isn't such hogwash you know maybe she knows what she's doing and so um i think it that's the way we i won them over I, I didn't win them over by speaking to them and trying to convince them i had to treat their patients 
And I said, you know, send us a few patients that you have difficulty with. And then hopefully, thankfully, a fair amount of them got better and they were. And I said, well, go back to your doctor and tell him that, you know, you got better. And then it was from the therapy because that would be helpful for me. So I had a lot of people advocate after they were patients. Proof is in the pudding. I think that still happens. They mm -hmm. Doctors, physicians end up sending people that they have the most difficulty with or don't know where to turn to next. They'll go to vestibular rehab. Right. Let them try to figure it out. <laughs> yes. And, they, you know, they, they only talk so much. And so when the patient's telling them the same thing, they're like, oh, no, we need to send you to someone who, you know, can treat you. And so and it's been it's been good. I've, I have I think I have less resistance now, but I still do get the occasional physician that's not really on board, so to speak. Yeah. Now, had, you know, what, what happened with us, though, with luck would have it is that after my like second year or something, I happened, I actually treated the editor of the New York Times, one of the editors of the New York Times. So he wrote an article about us. And that was like, Oh my gosh, I got so many phone calls after that article. I, and I, I tell this funny story, which is really kind of funny, but um, they would cry so many calls for people that wanted vestibular therapy that one person I called back and gave them my mother's home phone. I don't oh, I remember why. this story. I don't know why I did that, but I did it. So she <laughs> called my mother. My mother said, are you dizzy? And she, <laughs> she told her the whole story. My mother said, I think my daughter can help you. So this person is thinking that she has to go through my mother in order to get a thing. It was very funny, but um, you know, so we got that, we were inundated and that really helped um, get people, you know, um, patients to call as opposed to having to have the physician call. So we got a lot of in calls from that. Yeah, that's definitely a breakthrough. An yeah, that article really in the New York Times. Yeah, really. Manny, we gotta we gotta get on that level. <laughs> Man, <laughs> we're trying. We keep pushing for Stephen Colbert. She happened to have BBBV, so it was a real good treatment. So she really got better really quickly. It was like, yes. So <laughs> it was very helpful. Well, that's, that's one different. reason why we do a lot of education in the community, right? So we do reach out, outreaches mm -hmm. to the community and educate them about BBV and try to raise awareness because most of the time, these dizzy patients have to be their own advocates. Absolutely. So they're usually the ones going to their doctor saying, can I do this? Is this going to be something that can help me? And the doctor's like, sure, let's try it. And some yeah. are, are real advocates. There are a good handful of doctors out there who are real mm -hmm. advocates of uh, uh, vestibular um, therapy. So that's a good thing too. Yeah. But so what? What if you could think of something, maybe the way you explained something or a treatment that you used to go to all the time that you no longer use because now you know better? Can you think of anything or does? Yeah, yeah. I think um, not a, a procedure that we used to do for BPPV is after the BPV we did the treatment, we would put them in a collar for mm -hmm. seven to 10 days and then they couldn't lie on their right side. So, um, for another week and it was like we were making their neck stiff and you know which was you know you so you take care of the bbv but you're making your neck like stiff so we had collars everywhere everyone was wearing collars it was kind of counterproductive now that i look at it so not soon after there was a study done with precautions and without precautions and there was no real difference between them so i really don't advocate any precautions after BPPV, but I, I went from the sleeping up in a chair with a collar for, you know, three to five days to nothing. So I think that was helpful because we, you know, people would come back and go, yeah, I feel better, but my neck's killing me. 
So yeah, <laughs> that was kind and of. By the way, there are some physicians that still provide handouts that say to do this. And if you're listening as a patient or clinician, <laughs> this is not necessary. I mean, of course, every patient is different. So use your clinical judgment. But right. yeah, this that's definitely an old school way of thinking. That's a yeah. perfect example. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, but you know, we were, I, it took me a little while to not say not precautions since I went from the school of all precautions, but I never do it anymore and not for years now. They also yeah. seem kind of counterproductive too, to a degree, right? Yeah. Cause the collar inhibits move motion. So and now they're not moving, they're not compensating. And then also I find that a lot of vestibular patients do end up with some cervical component that amplifies their dizziness because Absolutely. they're just so tight from guarding and not wanting to move their head. So, right. you know, definitely something that was kind of the mainstream and what you had to do has now turned into the, that's old news. And it makes me wonder what the heck we're doing now is going to become old news <laughs> five to 10 years from now. It makes me, it makes me worry a little bit. <laughs> I know. Sure, but. <laughs> and yeah, in addition, was... you have so many people with BPPV who have other vestibular disorders in combination who actually need the head movement right. in order to get better. So yeah, yeah absolutely. And okay. I have, I have another question that is, uh, pretty close to my heart as well. Okay. Did you think Danny and I were crazy when we started telehealth before NYU started telehealth? Absolutely. <laughs> you cannot possibly do this treatment via a video. There's no way in, in God's green earth that this will, will work. But God bless you, Abby. That's what I was like, you know. Um, but, you know, I always knew you had a, the smart. So I knew there was something to it. But I... I wasn't a sold, certainly not in the beginning. I had off a feeling mic. that was going to be your answer. Off mic, Abby, we actually talked about that a little bit before you got here. We both, I told us telling Tara that I thought you were just as crazy when we met up at that <laughs> bar. And I was like, you can't do like, okay, whatever. You can't do that. Like, I'll just listen. But now here we are. <laughs> here we are. Terry, right. you guys are providing telehealth services still, right? Yeah. And, and you know, luckily our insurance companies are still paying for it. They, they extended another 60 days. So, um, and it's, it's a godsend app. It, it really is. There's um, people that, um, you know, can't come to this distance and we can do it over by telehealth. There's people that are afraid for COVID, obviously, that won't, don't want to come in person. So it, and like some of our face patients that we have from all over the country and not to, to, to deviate, but um you just can't come. So, you know, it's, it's, it's having people being able to be serviced who just can't get to the Institute or anywhere near them. Like, you know, they're out in, in places that don't have vestibular therapy. So it's really been very, very successful and very helpful. So and what you're saying is you're a believer. I'm a believer now, Ab. <laughs> I, can't, I tell you, I was very skeptical and, uh, but the patients, they love it. Like, and the other thing is looking at someone in their home has so much benefit, you know, to, so if they say, oh, I don't have a hallway to, to do my exercises and you can figure out something or, you know, rearrange their apartment in a way that's more safe. You know, it's just very, very, very beneficial. And I am a believer now, Abby. I, I, sorry, I ever doubted you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we had a meeting myself and some therapists and management from your department, of course. And I think the first thing I said was, 
uh, everything's the same. Like, yep. I don't know why you want a meeting with me because you already know what you're doing. You know, your history is the same. Yeah, you might not be able to do some specific test, but is it really going to impact what you do with your patient in terms of intervention? Probably not. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, once you do it a few times, you start to realize that that so much can be communicated verbally. And of course, you can demonstrate still visually, but... Mm -hmm. Also what you said, being able to see a patient's house, you know, you can see that throw rug that they've tripped over five times that you right. can now ask them to remove or at least <laughs> tape down or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, telehealth is pretty cool and I don't think it's going anywhere. I mean, it certainly isn't for our clinic, but um, I think most clinics will probably keep it as an adjunct or a, an additional service that they can provide. Yeah, we've done some hybrids too. You know, people come in for a session or two and then go to telehealth if, or if there's some part of the eval that we really need to see that we can't do on telehealth, then we'll bring them in. But it's 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 really goes very well, and I've had a lot of people that just start and get discharged from telehealth. I tell you, Abby, didn't believe you at all, but. <laughs> I had a feeling, like I said, I remember I went back to visit uh, some colleagues and they were asking me a bunch of questions about, you know, what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And I said, you know, you guys should really think about adding this to your to your service. And everyone was like, mm, yeah, no. <laughs> well, you take, you take away some of that comfort. Like I'll say since starting telehealth, it's actually changed my in-clinic approach to some of my evaluations mm. where I don't feel the need to do every single test. And mm. I don't need to do all these things to bolster my case because I, I've done enough already. I've seen, you know, what I need to see. And here's how I'm going to create the, the plan of care. So, mm. you know, doing telehealth kind of takes you out of that position of comfort of doing a million tests and really being right. sure about what you're seeing right. and kind of just trusting more in like the, the foundation, the basics. That's a very good point. Yeah, and that actually leads me into another topic or point, and that is that there was a time that both Danny and I were goggle snobs. We 100% <laughs> needed goggles in order to do anything. And I will be the first to say that if I could choose to have goggles or not, I would of course choose yes. Give me the goggles. But you know, now after treating telehealth, whether you see a patient in the home, in the clinic, if goggles aren't available, another, another clinician is using them, you can still do your evaluation. And uh, I just think back to the days that I was in your clinic, Tara, and I would get so upset if I didn't have goggles available for my evaluation. <laughs> yeah. And gosh, we have so many, you know, um, now. And I think that we are, still are a little goggle snobs in the clinic. Because now that there's a new set of goggles that are cheaper and just as good, um, it's been helpful, you know, so we've been able to purchase them. Um, but again, you're right. You don't need goggles in telehealth. You don't have goggles. So, um, you know, we're getting away from the necessity of having them for every single thing. They're helpful when you in certain situations, certainly, but um, you can do without. Can I ask what brand of goggles that you are utilizing? Just because I am obsessed with trying out all different types of infrared goggles. And uh, I've been having fun trying to look at all the new systems coming out. I have to think about the name of them. I think they're Quest First. Is that 
maybe uh, this vestibular first. Yeah, maybe vestibular yeah. first. They're they're um, lightweight goggles. There's they're, um you can use both eyes or one eye. They have um, then they're just in a lap to connect it to a laptop. Yeah, they're they're very simple. I love love, love them. Yes, they're very good. Fixation. And you've been plugging those goggles for a while. <laughs> I, yeah, I've been switching back and forth between a set um, that's used out in Australia called Vesticam and Vestibular First, and they use the same operating platform, um, which is free but easy to uh, make your own. Like you said, you can pull up both goggles, uh, views of both eyes. You can add a room view. Uh, it records easily, stores easily. It's just it is piece of cake when it and comes to treating. Like Half the price. It, for once, we have an affordable set of, of goggles out there that you don't have to go uh, to your department chair and ask for like a Cadillac when it comes to right, like, asking right. for a piece of equipment. Absolutely. So it yeah, makes it very small easy. Mom for... and pop clinics can even afford yeah, them. Yeah, right. It's great. Like, it was seven fifty. It's now like a little bit over a thousand, but it's really very, they're very very useful and very good. Nice clear picture. Well, when it comes to tools in, in vestibular rehab, that's the most expensive thing. The rest of the stuff you can either make at home or find for really cheap on Amazon. So Absolutely. when you're creating a vestibular program, you know, that should be a no brainer. That's one piece of equipment that you'll use for the entire time. That is just a one time purchase. It's great. Yeah, so that's cool. And now they are much uh, they're sturdier. It seems to me I've been I used to send cameras back every other week, you know, this is broken. This is what so this I've not had any trouble with these. Yep. I agree. That's good. We'll tag vestibular first in our show notes too. <laughs> yes. Even though I know we tag them a lot in other other posts. But uh, you know, a topic we discussed on our last show was COVID, whether you actually contract COVID or you got the vaccine or both. And some correlation that we've seen just anecdotally with patients coming to see us with dizziness or new nu onset or exacerbation. Have you guys seen that in your clinic at all? Um, we have just a handful, not, not a majority, just a handful of people that, like you said, either have uh, dizziness first for the first time or exacerbation of symptoms. Um, they, they seem to respond well though. They seem to just need a little bit of intervention. Um, to um, to overcome this problem, it doesn't seem to be a, a long lingering thing. And what I was telling Danny the other time ago was that uh, I, we saw a lot of BPVV for the inpatient um, COVID patients that were extubated and had a, a significant course of COVID. So um, we, I was doing a lot of education with them in, in the inpatient service because they were finding a lot in inpatient rehab, they were finding a lot of people with BPVV and, and it wasn't coming out right away because they had so many other things to take care of and worry about. But then when they started to move, they, they discovered it. So um, it was a nice thing to be able to treat that population, um, you know, and get rid of at least that, you know. I found that so interesting. That's, I mean, obviously it's, it, when you look at the history, you think, duh, like that's obviously something that could happen, but probably something that was last on the list of what they anticipated was going to happen once getting the patient moving again. So I thought that was actually fascinating. I, I haven't heard that yet. And it's completely, it makes a, a ton of sense, a ton of sense. Well, it's a virus, you know, so it, there's mm -hmm. no reason why it couldn't just affect that, that part of your ear and, and Absolutely. stuff, so, you know, um, but, it, you know, when they were very successful, but like I said, they didn't figure it out for a while because they weren't moving, you know. So. 
And also, you know, the inpatient care team is probably not entirely used to seeing BPPV. So even if you sit the patient up and they're saying, I'm dizzy, they're probably thinking, oh, blood pressure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and they did. And I, But there was a couple there that fortunately had been through vestibular therapy before. So they were, they had rotated to that service and they're like, oh, I know, I think I know what this is. So that was helpful. Yeah, that is very helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, being that you were my teacher, <laughs> if you didn't already catch it, Tara is the one that introduced me to vestibular rehab. And after I started vestibular rehab, I basically, and Tara, you can vouch for me on this one, I basically refused to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. She was, she was sold. <laughs> I was sold. So if you are educating a new patient or a family member, caregiver, whoever, someone who hasn't heard of their vestibular system before, how, what's your spiel? How do you describe it to them and its role in? in I had this as my spiel. <laughs> it's, <a big laughs> ear. it's an ear that's like four times the size of, or at least 10 times the size of your regular ear. And then I usually take out this little structure and I kind of explain what the structure is, you know? And so I, I will, I'll tell them about the semicircuit canals component, the oldest component, what their, what reflex they're responsible for. So like the vestibular canals are responsible for keeping your head still. I mean, keeping their objects still when you move your head and the vestibular spinal reflex is maintaining your balance when you move your head. So I emphasize the importance of head movement and what head movement does and how the information gets from your ears to your brain and then out to the, the organs that need to make adjustments. So I start pretty much with the, with the basics like that. And then depending upon the patient, and the family member, a lot of them want to know a lot more. So then I'll go in a little bit deeper and talk about, you know, um, what what um, what the actual reflexes are, how they actually work, where the, how the eyes move, and the way they're supposed to move, and what happens if they're not functioning, like the world is moving when your head is still, and you know, go into a little more detail about balance and when your head is moving, and um, and but other people kind of glaze over and say, okay, just do what you need to do. <laughs> so, it, you know, it depends upon the patient's response and what they want. But usually I'm educating all the way through their therapy. Like it's not just the first session because the first session I'm trying to make them dizzy in, in many cases and maybe they can't concentrate on what I'm trying to say. But as we go along, they have more questions and I start to explain things automatically in the second, third, fourth session because they, they really couldn't really pay attention um, to everything that was happening in that first session. Yeah, along those lines, I always tell people that every session is a reassessment. So if you have a total knee replacement and there are specific protocols that you're supposed to follow, you know, you can pretty much stick to the plan, but in vestibular rehab, you don't know what your patient's going to say when they come into that next session. So yeah, you can have an idea on how you want to progress an exercise, but depending on how they responded to your initial intervention is going to determine your course of care moving forward. And therefore education throughout is always occurring. Yeah. Always occurring. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important too, because 
why would you stare at something and turn your head back and forth a hundred times if you didn't know why you were doing that? I mean, it's, it looks a little ridiculous, right? So and unless I feel it's very important to explain why people use particular or doing particular exercises, because then they buy into it a little more than just looking silly. <laughs> That patient buy-in is so important, especially when the patient has to go home and explain to their spouse what they're doing. Because yeah. I've had a lot of spouses go, this person's got to be nuts. Like, what are they <laughs> teaching you over there? So right. a lot of education is super important, not only for patient buy-in, but spouse and family. And that way they don't also don't feel like that they're wasting their time. It's, it's important to get that consistency at home. Otherwise, the magic isn't going to happen. Right. Absolutely. So it's a it's a ongoing thing, and then with this therapist, it's an ongoing thing too. You know, mm -hmm. you need to keep your therapist up to date with all the clinical practice guidelines and all the best practice guidelines. So um, we're we're educating each other a, a fair amount too with new anything that new comes up in the research. And that's you know, secretly why we do this show. Is yeah. because we get to talk to, to all these great clinicians and people who are looking into research and doing new things. And I mean, Abby, honestly, would you say that almost every single episode we've done, we've took, taken away something new, we've learned something, it's changed how we approach vestibular therapy. I mean, almost every single episode, which is crazy. That's great. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, uh, you know, we don't really have that big office feel anymore. It's It's Danny and I. So yeah, we talk every day, but to have new thoughts and ideas come into the show that we can implement into our everyday practice, I think is, well, learning in general, continuous learning yeah. is so important, especially in this field. So yeah. it works out. Um, um, I, when we were talking about um, people with COVID, there is a, a website that um, patients have logged in. It's amazing the amount of people that are actually logging and saying they have symptoms from COVID and they have dizziness and stuff. It's a one of the patients showed it to me, their chat room, and, you know, it's just support for each other because it's such a difficult, difficult thing. But yeah. Don't Danny, was that what you were talking about last week or maybe something well, different? So I was uh, made aware of a link that I was not aware of until about a week or two ago through the CDC called V-SAFE. And it's uh, a place where you can report your post-COVID vaccination symptoms. Um, but I think Tara is talking about a different site where people go on and kind of um, mingle and talk with each other, patient right. on patient, about their symptoms. Um, so, you know, you know, that's another great thing to have people, make, uh, people not feel so alone. You know, to have that kind yeah. of support is huge. But then hopefully things like the CDC are paying attention to sites like that where they can see this influx of, of people yeah. talking about it. Because then even just to know you're not alone, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. A lot of people, you know, that's the funny thing, too, when it comes to um, trying to get out into market your program, right? A lot of people are like, oh, dizziness isn't that common, or oh, I don't see a lot of that. But a lot of people don't speak up and talk about it because one, they either feel like they're crazy, or two, no one listens or believes them and they just kind of keep their mouth shut and they feel alone and isolated with everything. So, you know, talking about it is, and feeling like there are other people out there is, is really important. And it's usually not until someone gets vertigo that their friends go, oh, yeah, I had that. Yeah. Or, yeah, I, I have that time to time. Go, Why hasn't anyone said anything? Yeah. I, I think that that's the worst thing in the whole world is the dismissiveness that some people get from, from practicing physicians or physical therapists even or any any health professional that, oh, this will go away. You know, just lie down. It will be okay in a, in a week or two. That just makes me a little upset when that happens. Or what I think is even worse, it's all in your head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. And it's too happens too often. Agreed. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about every session being education and reassessment, how then as a clinician do you recognize when it's appropriate to discharge a patient? Because some of these patients aren't getting 100% back to their usual normal selves. Well, I usually make it the criteria if they're not really changing that much or they have the tools and the exercises to do to get better and they just need to practice them. That's usually when I start to talk about discharge. I actually talk about discharge at day one because I think people need to know what our plan is. And after the valuation, I can say, well, I think you need about five or six sessions or something to that effect. And then um, just making sure that they, they have the tools, they know the exercises to do. And I'm confident that if they continue with these exercises, then they'll reach their full potential. And, and, you know, usually, um, that goes well. We have a platform called Physitrack. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's a home exercise uh, platform that we've developed all our own, uh, many of our own um, videos to, to teach people how to do particular things so they can go on Physitrack and we assign them the exercises that we want them to do. And they can go on Physitrack and, and, and um, they'll see a video of how to do it and um, you know, and instruct instructions on how to do it. And it's been very helpful because if people forget, you know, how people call you like, you know, through, Oh, I forgot my exercise or I left them at home. They can just go on to my chart. It's called, and they go to the visit track app and there they are every exercise they need to do. So I think that that's also helpful and allows us to be confident when we discharge people that they have, you know, access to the exercises that they need to do to get better. And that they're doing them correctly. Right. Yeah, that's mm. really important. I that's have cute. considered doing videos, and I think with your with your um, story there, I think that might have to be added to Balancing Act now. It's a very <laughs> useful tool because you know that they're actually doing it correctly, like you said. And then if they forget, or you know, in a in a month, you know how some people in a month, oh, I'm starting to slip back. I need to do my exercises. They can just look back to what they were doing before if it's appropriate and you know just pick it back right back up so it's we've we, it's a lot of work um to set it all up but once we got it together it, it's really been very helpful yeah like you know danny and i both i think we're kind of lucky in the sense that we fell into vestibular therapy i was rotated to the department and learned that way and danny worked with jeff walter where is he out of? I can never pronounce it. He's up it. in uh, uh, Danville, Pennsylvania, but Guy Singer. Oh, Danville. I was thinking of something that started with an M. <laughs> no, I, I guess can't not. Remember. But well, I was um, blessed when you rotated to my department, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tara. But if, if there's clinicians out there that want to add this to their repertoire, what do you recommend they look for or look into? What courses maybe? I think that... Um, the one of the courses that I um, our course we ever have, have a course that's coming up on November sixth and seventh, which is um, a vestibular course virtually. But we will do be doing some videos and hands, you know, and, and educating people live. Um, and I think that's a very good course. And Rick Clen Daniel has a very good um, virtual course as well. Um, so I would take a beginner's course first, and then what I would recommend is you know, re reading the, the major books 
Dr. Herdman's book, um, going through that. And then once you've had a few patients, you have to have a few patients to all, to put this stuff in practice, you know? So you have to, um, after you've had like a, maybe three months of seeing patients, then you can think about even getting certified in this area. And there's a certification course that's in Atlanta, LA or Salt Lake City once a year. It hasn't been live lately because of COVID, but we should be, you know, ramping back up. It's a, it's a very much of a hands-on type of course. So we're trying to figure out if we can modify it a little bit, but it's a very good week-long course that gets you certified in the, in this area. So I think courses and then, you know, look at the clinical practice guidelines for different um, areas like vestibular hypofunction, maybe start with and things and just um, really take a, a comprehensive course that gets you started, you know, and then once you're started, then you can go to the certification, I would think, but don't, I would never go there. If you haven't treated patients anymore, you'll be like a deer in the headlights. It's very way too much information if you haven't ever treated the population the, before. The certification course is like summer camp for vestibuloholics. <laughs> it was so much fun. I actually brought my my vestibular rehab textbook and had all you guys sign uh, my book that year because I was that I much did. of a, a nerd <laughs> level. But <laughs> I haven't Danny is the ultimate vestibuloholic. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to be one of those teachers that teaches the certification course. So and you've signed my book. I did. We're lucky. I was not one of the fans of signing books because I wasn't. <laughs> it worked out well, but we have fun there. But it's it's a it's a it's, it's a lot. It's yeah. boot camp. I will definitely say if you don't have a lot of experience in treating, do not go. Um, you want to make sure you feel comfortable in the basics before going to that course because it is in depth. It is all day. They feed you. You sleep in the same place that you learn. I mean, it's all day uh, lectures. La yeah, it's lectures, lab, and then followed by a practical exam by the end of the day. I mean, and then have a big test at the end. It's it's in depth. You should really make sure you like vestibular therapy before going. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, even after having patients under your belt, it can still be overwhelming. And, and some of the questions you have to think, you would think that after treating for a while, this would be piece of cake. But some of the questions you're like, hold on, did I answer that correctly? Wait a second, let me go back to this one. I remember walking out of the exam and thinking, wow, Tara's going to be really upset if I just failed that. <laughs> well, it's also when you start getting into practice, you'll find that every single patient does not follow textbook vestibular no. issues whatsoever. And a lot of times patients have layers because a lot of conditions can be secondary conditions to other vestibular dysfunction. So when you start getting into the practice of this, a weekend course is great, but it's gonna take extra time and reading on the clinician's part to do your research because mm -hmm. you might have a really funky atypical BPV patient, yeah. or you might have somebody with a vestibular neuritis or hypofunction that also has some sort of canal issue involved with BPV, you know, yeah. you've got to be flexible and you have to be um, easy on yourself with taking the time to learn this. Find someone you can talk to, get on yeah. um, social media accounts, do all those different things because it's going to take some time to get comfortable. It is not comfortable whatsoever in the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> it's and I think if you have someone that you know that has been treating this population, that's always very helpful to be able to email them and, you know, give them a, a scenario and have get some input from them. I have people do that all the time. And I think it's, it's helpful, you know, and I, you know, I don't know everything, obviously. So I have questions too with people. So I have people I know I can reach out to to answer.
questions. I call Rick sometimes and he goes, where do you find these people, Tara? <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of such a thing. And well, I same think, thing oh, with Jeff. New York. Yeah, I'll, I'll reach out to Jeff and Jeff will be like, huh, let me get back to you. And he'll reach out to the person that he reaches out to, which is a Neil Shepard. And it kind of goes up the chain and comes back yeah. down. And usually along the way, we pick up resources and articles to reference and everybody learns something. And it's interesting when you find those weird videos because everyone's kind of like, oh, I really want to see that now. Can you send that over? <laughs> Neil Shepard seems to be the, the guru, the top guy that everybody yeah. goes to. Well, Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know you are awesome in my book and now hopefully in all of our listeners' books too. Uh, we'll definitely, if you could provide us the link to your course, we'll add it to the show notes for any clinicians that are interested in it. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Any research going on at NYU? No, I think you know we've really tackled a lot of education stuff um, and not really researched at the, at the moment. Um, why we had some downtime, we, we, you know, buckled up on our, our modules for staff education, but we haven't had a, a heck of a lot of research at the moment. There are things that we're looking into, like when to do high, high aerobic exercises with the vestibular population. And, um, you know, I think it's much earlier than ever we ever thought before, you know, that, that maybe they can get into some biking or, or some um, aerobic exercises that way. So, we're looking at that kind of stuff. But other than that, I, I thank you, Abby. You're always one of my favorites, as you know, which I shouldn't, nobody else should hear that. But um, <laughs> And Danny, it's really nice meeting you. And I, I thank you both for having me on the show. I hope you learned something from me too. So absolutely. <laughs> so, absolutely. Thank, thank you, you so much, Tara. Oh, you're welcome. You take Good night, everyone. Good night. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources, including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to Me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.